Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, we speak with Bob Brown, Principal Planner with SHN Engineers and Geologists. Bob has been in the far north coastal part of California for 40 years, where he has spent a majority of his career as a contract municipal planner and CEQA practitioner. Bob has a passion for rural issues and currently leads the five rural SHN offices providing municipal planning services to rural jurisdictions, permitting for private clients and environmental impact assessments to everyone in between. Bob recently was part of a team that prepared the EIR for the removal of the Klamath Dams in California, and he was responsible for analyzing many of the associated construction-related impacts. He's currently working on portside development associated with offshore wind, and he's board member with the AEP San Francisco chapter. He's taught the CEQA and NEPA course at Humboldt State University, which is now Cal Poly Humboldt, for 14 years, where he has the opportunity to influence his future regulators. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Jessa. And I'm Laurel. And today's guest is Bob Brown. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Yes. Let's start with how you're connected to AEP. It's a long story, I'm sure. But yeah, tell us how you first got into the community and where you are now. All right. So first, I'll just say that I'm currently with the AEP San Francisco Chapter Board. I do the programs for um, the North Coast. And maybe I should really say far North Coast because I know you're from San Diego area and San Diego has a North Coast. So we're 700 and something miles above that. So we're the far North Coast, I guess. And I'm in Humboldt County, 273 miles north of San Francisco. And my area for covering programs is about 16,000 square miles. So a pretty coastal broad area. So, um, and I've been coordinating, um, presenting local AP basic and advanced CEQA workshops in Eureka. And I've been involved in our infamous NorCal conference, which we've been holding up with, with superior chapters. So with every other year. So, um, and then we've been doing monthly brown bag lunches for the last 10 years or so, um, which is really exciting that they're now being broadcast virtually. So um, <clears throat> I got originally involved in the AP chapter because I really wanted, I saw a disconnect with the urbanized areas. And here we are not being really a, um, we're, we're a member, but not really a part of AP, or we didn't feel that way then. And I wanted to start my own chapter. And so that's where I actually started asking questions. And Steve Nowak graciously said, well, what if we have a programs director up in the, in the Northern California area? And so, so they, they did that for a few years. And then I became the second program director. I think it was about seven, eight, seven or eight years ago. So, um, but what I saw with the disconnect between, and I want to talk about rural areas of California, but I really saw this disconnect that, <clears throat> you know, we have 90% of Californians living in 10% of the land in California. So very densely populated areas. And because of that, we have urban voters voting in urban legislators to solve urban problems for urban people with urban solutions that only apply to urban areas and then they get misapplied statewide. So to the rest of the 90% of the land. So, so I saw that there really needed to be more of a rural voice in everything that we do. So, um, <clears throat> you know, so anyway, 
as as this legislation continues to occur, you know, I don't want to whine about it. We're really at the point of laughing about it, saying, "Yep, here's another one." So um, anyway, you know, and just as an example, yeah. we have municipalities up here, cities and counties. They may only have a half time planner, and they're expected to meet the same reporting requirements, say, as San Diego County. So um, yeah, and, and uh, we're we're kind of forgotten. It's it's interesting to compare. I'm glad you made the comparison between San Diego County and where you are because the AEP chapter covers San Diego County and Imperial County. Imperial is very rural, obviously, very, very, very different. But also San Diego County is is a rural county. It's mostly rural, but the majority of the decision-making is being made by the districts that are urban. So we can totally relate and understand, understand that. I think one of the big differences might be for our audience to remember is the County of San Diego, which implements a long range and project planning for the unincorporated areas. It has a $6.8 billion operating budget just a few years ago. I'm interested to know if you know offhand what your county's operating budget might be just to compare the differences between a rural county with a big budget versus not so much. No, but I do know that some of the cities, the small cities I work with, and what I'm talking about is the city of Blue Lake, which has a population of about 1,200 people, the city of Trinidad that has uh, 362, oh wait, 363. <laughs> um, and, you know, we're talking about $200,000, $400,000 bu- annual budgets. So we're really working on a shoestring. So the more that the state requires things, the less the cities or communities have to really do what's important in the community. I agree. And there's some experience that we have in Imperial County where the the planning department just has a few planners. And then when the pandemic happened, it was very, very difficult for the planners to work from home and some of the planners retired and the, the pandemic itself really, I I think in my experience, disproportionately affected rural communities and county, county planning departments and county environmental uh, project review departments. Um, do, Do you have a feeling of the cities and the counties that you work with in the industry that the pandemic hit them differently? You know, we, we thought we were going to be more isolated. And, and I think during COVID, what really happened is we started seeing people traveling to the rural areas um, because they were working virtually. They weren't stuck in offices um, and they thought that they could get away, avoid the COVID elements in the city, but they brought them with them. And so so we were affected just as the same as anybody else. That's interesting. I actually, you know, I, before we recorded, I mentioned, you know, we're on a California podcast, but I'm spent some time in Missouri in a very rural area because that's where I grew up. And part of that is because of exactly what you just said. And so it's been really interesting though, to see it firsthand coming from a city of San Diego, you know, it's like the eighth largest city in the country to a town of 10,000 people and the approach I, I, I can see why there's a lot of different opinions about the best approach to handling the pandemic. When you're in a place where there's not a lot of people, it's not very crowded versus a place where you're all basically living on top of each other. You have to have different approaches to public health and planning around this. And so I it's 
like I said, I'm not a planner, but I, I saw it firsthand and I'm that person <laughs> taking these, these challenges and bringing them somewhere else. Um, and so, you know, I, I really, I'm really interested in rural planning because I've never, to be honest, I've never thought about it despite having a rural upbringing and living in San Diego. And that stat you said about 90% of the people living in 10% of California is, is very memorable. And thinking about that is, I've never thought about that, about like how the policy impacts so much of the land of the state, but not a large percentage of people. And so coming, like, I guess, what is your, are are you from, I guess my question, I have a few that are kind of woven in together is, are you from a rural area? Is that kind of what got you into this? Or did you start in more of a like urban area and then see the challenges that were impacted to the rural communities? Like, how did you kind of get, find your way in this career path? That's, that's a good question. So I did grow up in Oak Park, Illinois. And one day I got in my 1968 Chevy van and just started heading south and traveling around. And I ended up driving through Del Norte County, which is a lot of beautiful redwoods and rivers and things, and went through Humboldt. And I continued traveling, but I eventually came up here to finish college at Humboldt State University. And I guess I can say I kind of got stuck here, (laughs) which isn't too shabby. I've enjoyed it. So I've been here for a little over 40 years. So it's home now. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm raising a family and such here. So, And so when you were at Humboldt, then I guess, and I think with California and like the natural resources and the, like these beautiful redwoods and just the national parks, so many around the state, I, is that something that led you to this career? And the environmental industry and I guess just kind of how did you find your passion for this? <laughs> Good question. So when I came up here, <clears throat> so Humboldt State University had a natural resource planning degree. Um, if I knew what I knew now, I'd get Gandalf's words, flee you fools. <laughs> now I enjoy what I'm doing. But when I first came up here, I really wanted to live off the grid. And what I saw the planning degree offering was that the what I needed to know to do that. So I wanted to be a hermit in the mountains, um, but then I started liking people, and so I decided to stick around. So anyway, but when I again when I first came up here, I literally lived in a van down by the river. <laughs> we were just joking about that the other day. It's like now that's the dream. It used to be a warning sign twenty years ago, and now that's people's retirement plan. And um, we, I, I find it. Another, as you say that, that you got into planning so you could live off the grid, it sounds a bit like an oxymoron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. But it's (laughs) at the classes, the natural resource classes, so I could understand the environment. I mean, probably before that, I'd probably say that I've been around before there was an environment. I was trying to think of that. And I think that might be an awakening of a lot of people is life is just life. And then pretty soon you realize that I mean, we used to call it the outdoors. I used to play outdoors. We'd go hiking outdoors. Now we look at it as the environment. And so there's that awareness that happens. And that, that's the kind of classes that Humboldt State University offered. Great. And so you're a professor now at Humboldt State, right? I am a lecturer. Lecturer. Cal Poly Humboldt. Cal, yeah. So Humboldt State University this semester changed its name to to Cal Poly at Humboldt. 
I teach the environmental impact assessment class of so basically sequin NEPA. This is my 14th year. I started in the natural resource planning um, division while they were lacking a faculty member, and then I moved over to the environmental engineering. So I get to tell engineering jokes, which is kind of fun, but I've been doing that quite, quite a while, so. It's the best. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you did mention before we started recording that you owned your own consulting firm. What was it like starting that? And how, how did it go? Well, let me, if I go back a little bit further. <laughs> so I, my first job out of college was working at Humboldt County Planning Department on their first general plan, the first comprehensive general plan in the 1982, I think it was. And wow. after that, I made some connections and um, I walked myself into an environmental consulting firm. And I said, you got any openings? And the fellow brought me to the back conference room and he sat me down and he said, okay, well, tell me everything you know about CEQA. And I stammered around a little bit and I left on, I'm still unemployed. <laughs> so, so I really had to learn myself. I did get a job with a local engineering firm and kind of had to teach myself CEQA on the fly. And then from there, I ended up starting my own company. And that's what, what we mostly did was private development um, projects. But we also worked, uh, worked with the small municipalities. So we had contracts with them. My contracts for a couple of municipalities are 40 years and running. You know, so we've known the cities for quite a, these little cities for quite a while. So, um, but yeah, it was fun uh, developing an environmental consulting firm. I had probably at the peak 10 employees. Um, we expanded into wetland delineations and biology and stormwater. We were a little ahead of the game talking about LID, low impact development, stormwater things as we saw the legislation coming down. Uh, currently working on floating wetlands as a water treatment method. <clears throat> it's kind of a new technology. Tell us more. Floating wetlands. So, you know, with the treatment of yeah. uh, uh, constituents, it could be in a sewer sewer treatment or water treatment or um, even a natural environment is the treatment really occurs because of the bacteria on the plants and on the roots. And if you have wetland plants using used as a treatment method, like we do at the Arcana Martian Wildlife Sanctuary, um, I mean, just think of the benefit as if you had a floating wet with wetland with all the roots hanging down in the water column, just how much more treatment you can get. Um, but there are studies that are coming out now that, that certain plants take up certain nutrients. And so if you have water quality issues with phosphorus or with iron, then you could plant certain plants, basically hydroponics, um, and, and you, could, you could start to treat some of the water quality issues, again, with a, a, a natural uh, treatment system like that. Is there anywhere that's doing this right now? There's, there's, it's more in the Midwest. Okay. Um, it seems like, you know, we proposed the idea up at Klamath Lake. Klamath Lake has a natural high phosphorus um, input, and they also have all the agriculture surrounding it. And um, <clears throat> so we were introducing that idea. Now, of course, to treat the whole lake would just take millions of square feet of these things. But, you know, they have a problem with the Klamath River sucker up there. And, they, you know, and you could do these small little installments and it would provide this little microhabitat uh, for the sucker fish. So you wouldn't treat the whole lake, but you got to start somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. 
anyway, an emergency, an emerging industry. And, you know, when I'm at class, I, I'm probably one person who talks about careers more than others, you know. I'm brought in as to teach the practical side, and they're mostly the academic theory side, which is important as well. But I can at least speak from experience about careers, which is important to me. Yes. I will say, again, tell us more. What are some things? What are some emerging careers? What are students looking for? What are like more of these trends like floating wetlands? It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and again, the se- I teach seniors. And so a lot of them don't know what they're going to do. They have a kind of a focus. Well, I want to go into energy or I want to go into civil engineering or um, stream restoration, things like that. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, CEQA is, is a great guidepost on what might be coming up next. So I had, I had an intern that was interested in transportation planning. And, you know, started to introduce the whole VMT issues and how to get on top of that and actually how to deal with that in rural areas. There's not a whole lot of guidance in that. And I know a few of our speakers had had touted VMT. For rural areas, it really isn't the best thing happening. There's worse environmental policies, but but um, anyway, for different reasons. So, the energy sector. So getting, and not only just energy, but we might think of it through the sequel process, but just getting into the electrical or mechanical aspects of it. Um, you know, I, I think that expanding that the, the opportunity that environmental engineers have is they can expand their interest in engineering and design to solving problems with some natural resource background too. So, you know, having a, a biology, a minor in biology to understand something about bats and wind turbines. Um, and so I think rather than just being on the design aspect of it is actually, again, understanding the environment, which is, it's kind of odd that an engineering department would offer a CEQA course or NEPA course. And so, you know, and, then, and that's where I started out with is why do you think you're in this class? And so starts from there. I think that's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. I wish I had you when I was in college because I knew I didn't really understand what environmental consulting was. I did take a CEQA class by Wendy Worthy and it totally blew my mind. And that is definitely why I could, in my interview, speak a little bit more about CEQA was because of her class down at University of San Diego. So thank you, Wendy. Shout out AEP, Woman in Leadership. And um, I just wanted to highlight that engineers taking environmental classes would change the industry. In my opinion, it would really help us communicate the why behind when we're asking for particular information. So as an environmental planner, for example, I will often prepare, uh, environmental permit applications, army Corps, state fish and wildlife, federal fish and wildlife, all the things, right. And I need engineering information. Well, if the engineers and I can't speak that same language, it becomes challenging. You know, why do you need the cubic guard to fill? Why do you need the exact footprint? I'm not ready to give you the exact footprint. You know, engineers, they're perfect. Engineers are perfect. So they don't want to give you something until it's perfect. And I just want to encourage all of you um, engineering folks that are interested in engineering, but also interested in environmental engineering or interested in aspects of the environment to really have a multidisciplinary background so that when you're in conversations with professionals in various um, 
experience levels, you can at least pick up some words that resonate with you and start to get on the same page. Do you find that that kids in school these days um, are picking up the engineering language and and are picking up that SQL language and are starting to like connect the dots between things, or is it too early to tell? For for my class, they I think they do. I think they start to realize that, and it gives them something to think about. Um, what I pose with them is, you know, engineers are. Um, they're good at solving problems. You know, you give them a question, they'll come up with an answer. You know, and, and as an example, we've been asked, we've been asking them all along, how do we increase the capacity and the speed of both our traffic and our drainage? And now our, us planners are coming around saying, well, now we want to slow things down and we want to reduce. And, and they're befuddled, but if they realize we're asking the question, how do you do this? They gave us the answers. So we can't blame the engineers for the solutions they've come up because we as I, I refer to us as social engineers and it drives them crazy because we're not as precise and, and, and solution oriented, but so. Yeah. Well, people aren't perfect. That is a fact. I've never heard um, anyone reference planners as social engineers, but I, that resonates. I, I get that. I can use that as an analogy or a simile, if you will, because yeah, we're not doing precise things. We're almost doing more strategic things, depending on what your job role is. Like if, uh, like CEQA, for example, we go over like 26, 27, 28 issue areas. So we know bits and pieces about all those things. And we might be like wetland delineators. So we can get really, really specific about this stuff, but we're, we're able to look at whole systems, like whole systems. So we solve problems in a different way, not in like a, yeah, like a, a deeply, not like a civil engineer would design something to perfection. Yeah. We're more strategic. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I would say that our profession is we're geared towards anticipating and avoiding. <clears throat> the engineers are more into assessing and fixing. And, and I, that, that's usually after the fact. So they have an existing problem, they have to fix it. And so, but we're trying to anticipate and avoid or minimize those impacts. So it's a different approach, but they both have their values. That is very clear. Thank you. I love that you're a lecturer. So I can learn <laughs> while we're on here. So engineers assessing and fixing and planners avoiding and anticipating. Thank you. And so, okay, sorry, I have a, three questions. And I'm like, which one do I go first? A bunch of questions are coming up. So one thing I was thinking about as you're talking about, um, you know, the course you teach and the course material is with CEQA. So I, you know, my background, as I've shared, is not in environment, like I'm not an environmental um, professional, but I've worked in the environmental industry from the business side. And so I've come across a lot of times where I'm speaking with people who are entry level or looking for internships. And I always tell them, CEQA, you should know CEQA. Am I, is that good guidance? And I say, go to AEP. First of all, you need to join AEP as a student member. I do say that to everybody. I said, and you should look at their CEQA materials. Because I feel like my perspective as an outsider is that it, like what you guys were saying earlier, is it touches everything. And so at some point in your careers, you're getting started, even if you're not doing the applications, you need to be aware of the, the process. 
Is that good? Am I on the right path? You're right. I mean, I, okay. I think the exposure, I mean, the thing I try and teach about CEQA, I mean, CEQA is so nerdy and, and statutes, the whole process and things like that. It's like, you don't need to know that, but this whole idea of, of it, it, hopefully if you have a CEQA class that you start looking at those topics or how do you, you know, separating set, the environmental setting. So understanding the world that you live in, the property that you live in, and then think about the environmental analysis after that. But really just that whole holistic understanding of the world. You know, if one of the things I have a quiz on is, so you tell me what some of the topics we should be covering in CEQA. And I put the first letter of it and they're trying to figure it out. And I mean, it's really broad, but it's hard for people to think that whole comprehensive list of topics that we have to deal with. So, so I think there's value in understanding your world through a CEQA lens. And that means whether you're a practitioner, whether you're elected official, whether you're a neighborhood person wondering, wow, they're telling me that this Taco Bell is coming in, in, in a, into my neighborhood and I don't have to worry about it or cell tower or whatever. And so, so just kind of understanding that whole, you know, sequence supposed to be about a public process, public participation. It's kind of skimmed off into the very minimums, but I think the more people are aware and understand, the more involvement in the community uh, can, can occur. Yes. I wanted to highlight that too, for those whose first experience or early experiences hearing about CEQA is on this episode, is I would start, I do start when I am joining any project with developers and I explain to them what CEQA is. It's not this like um, elusive creature. It is um, a practical methodology of publicly disclosing environmental impacts of a discretionary project. And without all the jargon, it it's a public disclosure law at its core. Uh, it's how you get engaged and participate. So if you're a community member, if you live in a particular jurisdiction and yeah, there's some project going on, or maybe you get a notice in the mail or notice in your email or posting at your town council that something is coming in, you'll know that there are multiple different ways of getting engaged. And if you understand a little bit about CEQA, you might find the resource area that resonates with you the most as like your issue, for example, as being a beach community resident, stormwater and water quality is always um, my top aside from like open space preservation and uh, habitat and wetland restoration, like stormwater just drives me nuts. Cause I started my career as a sewer rat collecting stormwater samples and I just know what's in it and it freaks me out. So I encourage those of you who are studying the environment to maybe find an issue area that freaks you out and then get engaged more in those kinds of projects. So with that said, Bob, what is your favorite CEQA resource area? Or is there one particular one that really like hook, line, and sinkered you at the start? Holy cow. <laughs> I can tell you my least favorite. Oh yeah, go that, do that. Do the well, least. that's mineral resources. It, it, can you imagine how much of the state that doesn't apply? I mean, I'm sure everyone's just cutting and pasting the same thing over the years because really, but we have to deal with that. You know, I was anyway, but um, gosh, the most favorite in, in writing, I, I kind of like the hydrology. 
you know, geology, you kind of get to know the geology of the area and then there's some site specific thing with hydrology. It just seems like a really, it's new every site, like whether it's stormwater or whether it's streams or stream side management area, whether it's water quality or quantity, uh, some of the hazards related. Now we're dealing with sea level rise. And, um, anyway, to me, that's the most dynamic, I think, of all of them. Uh, and just, I know you have questions that you want to circle back on, but I, ha- I have to put my two cents in. My favorite issue area in the CEQA, CEQA is biology, because as an as a junior, like on-call environmental consultant, aside from being the sewer rat, I would um, compile all the information from like biological reports and the biologists, and I would, I would start writing the biology sections of CEQA. And then I got really excited. And so I would ask more about like, how did you find this information about species? And they're like, oh, it's a California natural diversity database. I was like, what's that? And then you started to become like, I felt like I was an investigative journalist or like a detective finding information from different resources online, geographic information systems, local land use authority, jurisdictional databases, project database. It just, to me, CEQA seems like like Sherlock Holmes and biology was my first experience in that. And I I just want to give a shout out to biologists. (laughs) No, I, and I support you on that, on the biology. And I think one reason is we, we used to know a lot more, I think about the animals that were around us and our schools have been kind of teaching not where to find a Martin or the winter wintering patterns of deer migration or things like that, which the wardens used to know. Now we're being taught the more pro- the more people, the more projects closer to the environment, the bad it is, the worse it is. And so what we want to do is just keep people and projects away from the environment. And so the more you understand the biology of it and the actual impacts, um, the more you have a conversation with the regulators that have it. I mean, we have this magical number of 100-foot streamside management area or 150 or whatever it might be. You know, there are projects that shouldn't be within half a mile of that 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 would have an impact. And there's ones that could be right up right in, in there and wouldn't, you know, again, have an impact. And so understanding the biology of the life that we live and being able to have those conversations. And I think the opportunity there is that agencies have their standard mitigation measures. And if you can enter into a conversation to say this is equally or more protective if we do things this way. I think there's an understanding that they missed in their in their education that would be informative. Thank you. I'm processing this and thinking so I'm I'm jumping a little around just a little bit and it's something that I was thinking about when we were talking earlier about the the policies that are directed towards more of the urban areas that the rural areas are still need to adhere to. Like you mentioned, for example, earlier VMT um, with the um, Department of Transportation. Can you give some examples or elaborate on that one about how there are policies for these urban areas that the rural areas need to adhere to that might just be absurd for lack of a better word? Okay, sure. Um, Just because I'm working on a couple housing element updates, it's in my mind right now. But, you know, first of all, the drought. So and I'm, I don't know if the governor is going to announce a new a 
statewide drought, but our our water system we had three years of drinking of water available to us when the, when the last drought was declared and so so that was applied statewide the governor never looked at local water supplies and how they were affected or not so so again plenty of water up here we're wondering well, why do i have to go to a restaurant and ask for water because it was a state regulation but we have three years worth of water up here and you know so so that's one example now we think about the water crunch and everything. So we have this drought in California, and now we also have this housing crisis. So how on earth, if we're in a drought situation, are we supposed to respond to the housing crisis we have? There's this disconnect. So you've got HCD, Housing and Community Development, saying build, 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 and we're looking at, well, for, for most of the state, where's the water, 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 water? You know, but it's like, don't confuse me with these varying issues, which is why I like CEQA because it's multidisciplinary in that way. I mean, I think that's one example for, I mean, the county of Modoc, I think in the fourth or fifth housing cycle, they had their regional housing need number was one moderate income housing. Does the county of Modoc really need a housing element? Well, it does because it's a state regulation. So, so you know, um, anyway, th those kinds of things. Um, I don't know if you knew much about Jefferson, the state of Jefferson. I'm in the midst of it here. So that that so the state of Jefferson was a real thing, and it was actually going to get passed by the by the federal government to create this new state in 1941 on December 7th was the was the hearing date. That was the day that Pearl Harbor happened, and so it never went any forward. And the reason that was started was because we had all this resource utilization up here, agriculture and timber. And all the money generated from that and taxes was going to the state governments in Southern Oregon and Northern California. And none of that was coming back. So the state was ignoring it. That was the original purpose. The resurgent of the idea of the state of Jefferson is because we have too much state involvement now <laughs> affecting our areas. And so anyway, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not a supporter of it. I, the state of mind I support. <laughs> But not practicality. There's no no money up here to support a new state. So, yeah. well, yeah, and I think you know, for you know, if anyone's listening outside of California, is that there really is a, a, I mean, probably even more than just Northern and Southern California. Like, there's all these different regions, and I think in pop culture and in media and in you know national politics, you hear California, California, and people think L.A., maybe San Francisco, and it's, there's just so much more to it. There's so much agriculture and industry outside of that. And I, you know, coming back to like 90% of the state is, has 10% of the people. And, and so I think, you know, with some of these examples you're giving, what suggestions do you have, like, or how could this be, these policies be adapted for reality? Like the County of Modoc has like one moderate income house, like that's, doesn't seem a good use of resources. So how could that be balanced to the the urban and rural needs at the state level? Yeah, it's hard to come up with that kind of an answer because our legislation is based on population rather than land. And so you have someone like uh, Senator Weiner, who probably has the smallest but densest population. He's looking at his area and coming up with housing solutions for that area. 
I don't think his eyes do not focus on Modoc County or Humboldt County or anywhere else. If we had a land base, I mean, that would be too big, but if we were, had representation based on land base, you would have a whole different kind of legislative policies and regulations. I did mention VMT as, a, as for instance. Um, most of our right-of-ways in a lot of rural areas are not fully developed. And so CEQA was really good at um, um, you, being able to mitigate by fully developing those right-of-ways. We didn't have traffic capacity issues. And we look at the reason for SB 743 was to, to so that everyone in the urban areas didn't have to do EIRs just because of traffic. So this was kind of, again, a, an urban solution. As OPR said, it was applicable statewide. Yeah, we don't, we want to reduce the kind of miles that we do. But VMT is already kind of a policy. You know, if you're in a rural area and you're traveling an hour to go to a Costco store, you're not just going there and returning home. You're going to go see the doctor. You're going to have lunch with your friends. You're going to make three or four different stops. And so we're already kind of doing, that's the rural lifestyle is you have that multiple stop, but it's not really represented in well in the BMT numbers. And so, so obviously we can have general plan policies to address the uh, roadway improvements as mitigation, um, I, but we lost one of the most important tools that help rural areas develop. Uh, infrastructure-wise. So. I'll give a, another example. From my experience, was climate action planning um, is really different in rural communities than urban centers. And state goals to reduce greenhouse gas emissions disproportionately impact positively and negatively the different kinds of communities. So I think what we're learning, obviously, California abundance and diversity of organisms as well as diversity of human beings and how we live is so variable statewide that having a one-size-fit-all policy from the state government is super difficult to implement at a practical level. And I would say that a lot of government leadership at the state level uh, don't get down to that, get down to the practical weeds. They're not elected to get into the weeds. They're elected to be at the, at the strategy, high-level problem-solving. and. I want to shout out to AEP and the legislative um, committee and the day at the Capitol when we planners, we environmental professionals go to the state Capitol and we help educate the incoming legislators about CEQA and the interconnectedness of environmental planning across the state and how when bills get proposed and they come in for consideration, our lobbyists, our AEP lobbyists at California Strategies comes in and says, this is how AEP thinks that it may have unintended consequences to other other environmental policies and and legislation and yeah big shout out because being a part of the AEP community means that you get to help policymakers understand that and hopefully help alleviate some of the disproportionate issues on rural and urban areas. Yeah, I think climate change. Bob for governor. <laughs> no, no, no. I have to live down there. Um, yeah, climate action plan. If you remove transit all out of our climate action plans, what would you have left? So rural areas, transit is never really going to be the solution. So we don't have that as a tool. Everything with SB 35 and some of the housing opportunities there, we just don't have that developed. It's not really a solution. Um, 
don't have the people to support that. So yeah, that's a challenge to address those. Um, up here, being resource utilization, our 1992 um, carbon emissions were higher then than they are now. And so if we are to go back to our 1992 level, we should be increasing our greenhouse gas emissions. <laughs> so again, another, oh, they, we didn't think about that. <laughs> So everyone come to the AEP state conference in Yosemite. It happens annually in different places across the state, but we always have our climate change workshop on uh, the Sunday of the conference where our climate change committee at AEP, Michael Hendricks and everybody, they come and they talk about these issues in depth and the discrepancies between things. And we've had VMT workshops. I mean, you've been out near nearly every sequel workshop up North and the, uh, the NorCal um, conference, uh, speaking of which, walk us through a little bit of the special uniqueness and excitement about the NorCal conference so that our broader audience can get a little. So part of what I, um, when we talked about this was, was again, in rural areas, it's really hard to go to a secret workshop. Um, you know, for, you know, it's, you could be driving four or five hours easily. You know, think about Imperial County having to drive into San Diego. So, um, so really the AEP conference, it was actually generated after the, I think it was the East Sierra did something to this effect. And so we thought, well, what a great idea. And so it was trying to bring, bring expertise up to our local areas to train, um, which is easier to bring speakers up than to expect 40 people to go down to drive down to Yosemite for the state conference, by the way plug out to our live <laughs> conference in Yosemite, go climb a rock. But- um, Go climb a rock. Yeah. So um, anyway, so the idea was to bring some training up here locally. And I even remember talking to our, our chapter is like, well, can't we record some of these things? You know, um, this was pre-COVID, like the Institute that's taught there. Can, can we, just so we can have some things and then, boom, Zoom appears and we're doing all kinds of recording. So, you know, again, should I've had a live advanced sequel course up here? I would love to have done that, get the social interactions and things like that. But the fact that the state is offering a virtual conference is just beneficial to all our rural areas. We just have to get the words out because I think there's a lack of representation of rural planners on AEP because they have been so distanced. And now we have the tools to reach out and provide the training. We just have to get the word out to encourage them to help, so. And we hope that this podcast can reach the rural community members too, just another tool, a media tool in our toolbox to help spread the word of AEP and topics of interest and leadership stories to inspire people that are in rural communities that, that aren't gonna travel, which is funny because our conversation comes full circle when we started talking about how the pandemic has changed and things have gone virtual. And so now there is virtual access to all the great information and workshops that that AEP puts on and all the programs that we put on. So I think that's a really good time to do our rapid, rapid five. Unless you have another question, Jess. No, I'm ready. Bob, all right, here we go. What is your favorite daily habit? Sleeping. And getting up and having a fresh cup of coffee. Oh, yeah. The two have to go together. <laughs> Do 
three things you'd bring to a deserted island? Well, this is an interesting one because a deserted island. So, so question, how many people can you fit on this deserted island? But <laughs> my response would be none because then it would no longer be a deserted island. So, but, but I'd have to bring family, friends, and things like that. There's three, actually a whole discussion on whether <laughs> the term is really just desert island or deserted island, which includes both. But um, that is very like indicative of how a planner would answer. I was that thinking question. that too. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm on my heels with this one. Um, okay. So, Astrid, more information is needed to answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but but I would bring people. I, I okay, and then it would, like I said, wouldn't be a deserted island anymore, which is a good thing. That's right. Re, re the the irony, though, too. I'm gonna a call back to you going to Humboldt to get away, and your plan to go to school was to get away from people, and here you are now wanting to bring people to the deserted island. So that's a good sign. Have some good people. <laughs> they weren't so cuddly. <laughs> All right. What is your favorite environmental policy? Okay. When I first thought of this one, I thought live free and or die, right? But but related to that, Patrick Henry's quote, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Now, if you take the definition of liberty and use the word freedom, and we say freedom is the ability not to do what I want, but to, to be able to do what I what is right. Then if we only did what is right, then we wouldn't need most other environmental policies. So that's my favorite environmental policy. Just do what is right. So freedom. How's that? Yes. I have chills. Philosophical. Chills. I love this. Very interesting. Okay. Favorite fauna or flora? I'm going to mess you up on this too. So I'm a birder and, and uh, Laurel, I mentioned when you mentioned your interest in biology, it's like become a birder and you really start to notice things. So I would just say birds in general and the more variety is better. So if I was to say something, it would be the woods. Can you imagine any, nothing compares to being in the woods, calling out a good morning with the dawn chorus of birds. And that's just a fascinating. Oh, that's beautiful. So, Again, I can't answer your question, but <laughs> All right. I have to tell you, I Jessa, I, I know it's rapid five, but I feel very called. We can have a medium pace five. <laughs> medium pace five. This is a slow five. I recently moved to the woods and I wake up every morning to the sound, not only of frogs and toads that are very, very loud, but red tail hawk, scrub jay great horned owl, condor eagle, like they're the birds. When you finally move to out of an urban environment and you hear the birds, there are so many of them. And my dog just found a red tail hawk wing on the ground and ate it. <laughs> so my morning, my morning walk involved watching my golden retriever eat a red hill, red hill, red tailed hawk wing. Uh, I caught him. I put it back. It's sacred. It's back in the land, everyone. But I just want to, I want to highlight, yes, the birds, gosh, the well, woods. Since we're slowing this down, I'm having a similar experience where I'm visiting and it's woods and it snowed. Everything's white. And this tree was just full of cardinals. So like these bright red cardinals. And then the 
Females, though, are not bright red. They're like brown with a little bit of red. They're still really pretty, but the males are red. And it's just like out of a movie. It it looks like a Disney movie. And then there's also woodpeckers and bald eagles like in the front yard. It's unbelievable. And then the, uh, oh my gosh, the starlings, is that what they're called? Where it's just like swarms. I mean, it is, it is just indescribable. And so I've been very into birds lately as well. So I've been watching these birds and I'm like, when they're moving, I'm like, why are they all moving? What's happening? Something's happening. Um, but yes, Bob, you are, you've got us uh, excited about this. <laughs> yeah, even, even the Long Beach conference, I had my binoculars when I walked around Long Beach looking at birds. I mean, even in the urban environments, you got the songs if you, if you listen, if you tune into them. Yes. Well, and- next time, next time we're in person, Bob, I'm going to come out with you instead of going to the bar for a beverage. I'm going to come out with Bob in binoculars. Sun- sunrise. Eight o'clock. Well- Eight o'clock in the morning because they're not crazy. They don't want to get up when it's cold. So they wait till the sunshine hits the top of the trees. Okay. I have one last bird anecdote and then we can wrap up, <laughs> wrap up the slow five is in San Diego. There's parrots everywhere. Yes. And it's so, it is so cool to see as, you know, not coming from a tropical climate and San Diego, they're not native. The songs of parrots are not what you want to wake up to. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Good alarm clock, though. All right. Okay. Wouldn't it finish this sentence? Wouldn't it be cool if? You know, I started to answer that, like, if if the state conference in Yosemite was going to be live, and it's just so exciting that it's going to be, but so I can't use that one. But if California had a plan for rural communities besides turning them into urban centers, which is what's happening. So that would be really cool. If AP was behind that and helped make that happen. There you have it. Thank you so much, Bob. We really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been my pleasure and look forward to seeing you at the conferences or whenever our next opportunities. Yay. Absolutely. Bob with binoculars. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this episode. As a new podcast, it really helps us if you share with friends and colleagues that may enjoy this podcast as well. And please subscribe or follow the podcast to be alerted for new episodes. If you want to submit a shout out, please send a voice memo that's under one minute to podcast at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P dot org. That's podcast with an S at the end, podcast at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P dot org. Or please send any feedback you'd love to share. Thank you.